When I was a kid in elementary school, we had a rotary phone. Now, I like looking at the congregation because I see a lot of young faces, and that reminds me uh, that I have to explain things sometimes. A rotary phone was one of these phones where you had uh, a little dial, and you had to dial things. So nine, you know, you'd wrap it all the way around. One was short one, so you could get one several times in a row. But, but you'd wrap it, and then you'd have to wait for it to wrap back around, and then you'd pick a new number and wrap it and wait for it to wrap back around. And so that's how you would dial phone numbers. And it would take a while because, you know, it took some time to do all that. You didn't just have to punch a number. When I was in the middle school, we upgraded to a dial phone where you could just dial the number. You didn't have to wrap it all the way around and wait. In high school, pagers were really popular. And I never quite understood them. My friends would get them. And what, what would happen is someone would page you and you'd wear this little box and a number would come up, it would vibrate to let you know, and a, and a little number would come up, and that lets you know that you should call that phone number. Now, I get it for doctors and other like emergency personnel that were like, oh, it's an emergency, I need to take care of business, but I have no clue why my friends ever had a pager. I always thought, that's just a way that your mom can get a hold of you at all times, and as a high schooler, I didn't necessarily want that. So, so I never had a pager, but then my senior year, something new came out, and it was pretty amazing. It was a cell phone. Now, I didn't get a cell phone for quite a while still. It, it wouldn't be until I was in college. But I remember all my friends starting to get cell phones. By my junior year in college, I finally bit the bullet. I got myself a cell phone. Now, I hadn't had a cell phone for 22 years of my life. I was not used to having a cell phone. So the first day I got my cell phone, I went out to eat with some friends. And after dinner, we went out to this parking lot. And we had been talking for quite a while. And finally, they had to leave. So they got in their truck. And they started driving off. And I remembered that I needed to tell them something. And I'm holding my cell phone that I was just showing off to them. But for some reason like this, thing kicked in my head. And I didn't know what to do. I just knew that I needed them to stop to tell them something. So I took my cell phone, and in a great football spiral fashion, chucked it across the parking lot, and it landed perfectly in the back of their truck, and they stopped, and I ran up and told them what I needed to tell them. But before I could even tell them that, they were, like, they were laughing so hard, and they are like, did you just throw your cell phone? <laughs> and that's when it occurred to me that I had done something very foolish. <laughs> now... Something else you need to understand is cell phones back then were called Nokias, and they were bricks. So they didn't break, like Jen has broken two phones in the last year simply by <laughs> dropping it. Very, I mean like a two-foot drop, and her cell phone breaks. Maybe we need to upgrade and get better cell phones. I don't know. But, but these brick Nokias, you could run them over. You could do almost anything. I remember at one point I had like duct tape on. They had antennas, and you could pull it up for better reception. I don't know if that ever actually worked. But I know I could duct tape mine when it finally broke off. So I duct taped that. And they were bricks. So, so it still was intact when it hit the back of the truck. But my friends still to this day, every now and then, will call me up and be like, Hey, Aaron, do you remember that time when you had your cell phone and instead of actually using it, you just threw it? I still used it, guys. But they're like, they, sometimes they make fun of me and they're like, what was going through your head? You know, you, you've got this perfectly good cell phone and you're like, how can I get in touch with my friends? Huh. 
I could dial their phone number, or I could just chuck it into the back of their truck. So they still give me a hard time about that. But, I, but my whole point is I had this technology in my hand, but because I was so used to not having it, I just didn't use it. Well, I used it kind of. I used it in the old-fashioned way, right? I, I wonder how often we do that. How many times have you, like, had something or had a piece of technology, and you'd used it maybe even for a year, and then someone who was an expert in that piece of technology comes along and shows you something, and you're like, wow, my life just changed. I can actually use this efficiently, effectively. Jen loves user's manuals, and so sometimes we'll get some, a new piece of technology, and she'll dig in, and she'll be like, wow, you will not believe all these things I could do. And here, I've been using it for a couple weeks and using it on the lowest possible level that I could. We do this all the time. I think we do this with our spiritual life, too. God has given us so much more, but oftentimes we live a nominal Christian life. We put our faith and trust in Christ, and we recognize that he died for our sins, and then we are like, great, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and out of obligation, I'll go to church. You know, just to be a good boy, because God, you know, he did something great for me, so just out of being good for God, I'll, I'll attend church. And you know, I know that God wants me to live kind of a moral life, so, so I'll put up some moral boundaries, and I'll live within these moral boundaries, just, just out of obligation for God, because he did something great for me. He's not going to send me to hell. And we live a nominal Christian life, not really living the fullest life that we could possibly live. Because we don't understand what God has truly done for us. And we don't understand the absolute gift that He has given us. That's what we're going to study today as we continue our series, Better Together, A Study Through Ephesians. So open with me, if you will, to Ephesians 1. We've got Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 today. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you, He has called you? What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named? not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to, his, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So last week was a benediction. We looked at the introduction. We looked at the benediction, which outlined several blessings. This week we get into a prayer that Paul gives for the church. This prayer will introduce the main subject of the letter, and actually it will, it will transition us into the main subject. So he starts off with, for this reason. Well, what's the reason? It is all of the blessings that we talked about last week. It is that God has, get, had, has made us saints, that he has set us apart, 
Have you ever thought about yourself as a saint? That God, it's not about your moral perfection, but how God is morally perfect. And because he is morally perfect, he has put you aside, set you aside as his own special person. You are a saint if you have put your faith and trust in Christ. So there are all these blessings that we are saints, that he has given us every spiritual, not just some, not just part, but every spiritual blessing in heaven. That he has adopted us, adopted us to himself. Before the foundation of the world, think about that for a second. Before God ever created the world, he knew that he was going to create this institution or this, this body that he would call the body of Christ, that the church... And if you were found in the church, you would receive all these blessings. That you would be adopted. That you would be called a child of God. And not only that, but He's redeemed you from your sin. That your sin has a price that has to be paid. That your sin is a great offense to the righteous and holy God. And yet, because of His love for you, He paid that price for you so that you could be redeemed from your sin. And that He has forgiven you from your sins. So not only has He redeemed you, that He has paid the price for your sin, but He does not hold that sin against you anymore. Even though you continue to offend. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, those offenses are not held against you. And that He has given us an inheritance. So God has given us, He has lavished all of these blessings upon us, and it is for this reason, for the reason that God has lavished these blessings upon us, and because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints. And then He's going to outline the prayer. So it is for these reasons that He has these prayers, but it's also because He has heard. Now we've got to talk about that for a second, because Paul helped plant the church in Ephesus. So what does he mean by he heard? This might throw a little pe- uh, couple people off if you remember that he planted the church. Well, if you think about it, he hasn't been in Ephesus for about 8 to 10 years. So he doesn't know how they're doing except that he has heard reports. So people who have traveled through Ephesus would come to Rome and they would give a report to Paul of what's happening to the church in Ephesus. Now remember, we examined the the very first week, the introduction to this series, we examined how that church was on fire for God. How how they burned millions of dollars worth of books that were involved in witchcraft. How they had given up their pagan ways and how the excitement of the church actually started a riot with the people who worked at the temple because they were so afraid that their livelihood would be diminished. That's a church that's on fire for God. But we also learned that that church began to lose its love for God. That the passion wasn't quite there anymore. And so Paul hears the reports and he knows that he needs to be in prayer for them. But what what were the reports saying? Uh, Of your faith, meaning that they still believed in the Lord. The the word faith here is the same word that we find all the way back in verse 1. And it simply means that they believed in God. The Lord. But sometimes we use that word faith and we use it kind of flippantly or kind of wishy washy. We talk about faith as this like wishy washy thing, or you hear the statement like people of faith. Well, I'm a person of faith, or the, the people of faith. 
And we think that it's this like wishy-washy thing where it's like this hopeful thing. You know, I, I'm hoping that there's a God, and I'm hoping that that God came to this earth and died on the cross for my sins, and I'm hoping that my sins are forgiven so that I can go to heaven. But that's not what this faith is. It's not wishy-washy. It's rooted in historical fact. The evidences for the faith are overwhelming. Some scholars say that we have an embarrassingly rich amount of manuscripts that attest to our Bible. So there's a couple different attacks that we have on the faith, and one is there's attacks on the Bible. And what I mean by that is that people try to undermine the Bible. And they try to say that you don't know, you can't trust the word that you're carrying. You can't trust your English translations. I had a Muslim friend that used to actually argue this with me. He'd say, you can't have the authentic word of God in your hand because it's been translated. And so we'd get in a debate about that. And so there's this, tr- this effort to undermine Scripture. But we have an embarrassingly rich resources when it comes to Scripture. So I would say that what I'm holding in my hand is not the original document. So it, it is not the original inspired Word of God. I'll, I'll admit that. And the problem is, if we say that this is the original inspired Word of God, if there's any mistakes that totally undermines it, right? That means God made a mistake. And we know in the English translation that we have mistakes. So in our statement of belief, we say that the original documents are inspired in errant. But what we have now are several copies upon copies that have been translated. And so then people use that as a weapon against what we believe But there is something more to it, and that is that all of those transcripts, all of those manuscripts, all of the copies upon copies, we have so many of them that, once again, scholars would call it an embarrassingly rich amount of evidence. And what we can do is we can take all of those copies and we can compare them to each other, and we can put the work in to decipher what the original inerrant manuscripts would have said. And so, no, this isn't the original, inerrant, inspired Word of God, but this is something that I can still trust. Because God has preserved His Word in such a way that we have an embarrassingly rich amount of evidence for it. So, people try to attack the faith through Scripture, but then they also try to undermine the deity of Christ. And you'll hear this argument a lot that, I, uh, that Jesus had good PR. That's something I've heard quite a bit. Jesus, Jesus just had good PR. That's why, that's why we're still putting our faith in him today. And my uh, first, what I always want to say is, that is so incredibly untrue. Uh, if, if you have good PR, you don't get crucified on a cross, okay? That's just something you need to know right off the bat. If Jesus had PR, he had horrible PR, Right? It's not that Jesus had good PR. It's that he spoke the truth and that his resurrection was real. I love to quote Bart Ehrman, and and Bart Ehrman is a professor uh, of religion at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is an agnostic slash atheist. He can't decide whether he's agnostic or atheist, 
but he is one of the world's foremost scholars on the New Testament. And what he has come to the conclusion is, once again, the evidences of the resurrection are are so overwhelming that that the apostles absolutely believed that they saw a resurrected Jesus. Now, he says that he's a historian, and historians, uh, by the nature of, uh, of their discipline, can't, can't account anything to a miracle. And so he cannot believe in the resurrection because that's a miracle. Therefore, he discounts the resurrection. So how does he explain that the apostles believe they saw a resurrected Christ? He says they all just hallucinated at the same time. That's it. But he, he sees the evidence. He's like, it's just so overwhelming that the apostles believed in a resurrected Jesus. Why else would they go to their death? People will die for things that they believe in. We see that all the time. We see that in Christian culture. We see that with Muslims. We see that with a bunch of different people who believe very firmly in something, and they believe it to the time, place where they'll even be put to death for it. But no one will die for what they know is a lie. And all the apostles, if they had just made that story up for some type of power grab, one is that they did a horrible job of power grab. The apostles grabbed no power. In fact, the apostle Paul gave up power. He was on his way to becoming one of the most prominent Jews in all of Second Temple Judaism. And what did he do? He gave up all that power for the gospel. People will never die for what they know is a lie. And you have apostle after apostle dying for the gospel not retracting their statement, it would have been very easy for them to say, hey, you know what, I've actually got the inside track on this. It's all a conspiracy. Now pay me the big money so I can unveil everything. And the Jews would have loved to do it. It never happened. The deity of Christ, the resurrection, is overwhelmingly evident. Our faith isn't wishy-washy. It's not just something that we you know, hope happened. There is evidence for it. And that evidence only strengthens our belief in Christ. So, the faith in the Lord and Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Once again, this is not a wishy-washy kind of love. When we think of love, we often think of emotion, When we think of love, we think of this like overwhelming good feeling that you have towards somebody. But that's not what this love is here. This love is a doing what's best for the other type of love, no matter what. Now notice who this love is towards. It's not just towards some of the saints. It's not just towards the ones that that make you feel good. It's not towards the ones where you really agree with them theologically. Oh man, those are the easy saints to love, right? We gather together. We all agree. We have the exact same beliefs. There's no disagreement at all. And you're fun to be around. I love you. You're easy to love. But that's not what this says. It's not just towards those that are easy to love, not just towards those that are theologically uh, in 
agreement with you. It is toward all the saints. Think about Ephesus. Think about the diversity in that church. Think about how easily it was to be divided. And what kept them united was staying on track with the centrality of the faith that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. So, it's their faith and love towards all the saints, and for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you and remember you in my prayers. So there's two things that he's praying. One is thanks, and the other one is remembering and and praying for them. Intercessory prayer is the correct term. But cease to give thanks. Now, this isn't a command for us to give thanks, but I think it is something that we need to copy, that we need to imitate. It is really easy for us to become bitter towards one another. It's really easy for us to be let down by the church and become bitter towards the church or just towards people in the church. And The church is full of broken people that have failed. If you didn't know that you have failed yet, I'm sorry to let you know, you have. And I have failed too. And here's the deal, is if I haven't let you down yet, I am going to let you down. There's no such thing as a perfect pastor. I am not one, not even close. And I love the congregation. I I actually pray prayers of thankfulness for every single one of you. But I will let you down. When that letdown comes, it is really easy to let bitterness sink in. It is really easy to become bitter. Think about Paul sitting in prison, thinking about the church in Ephesus, and some of them were incredibly wealthy. It would have been easy for him to be like, oh, those stupid Ephesians, they know I'm over here in Rome suffering, and they just get to buy whatever they want whenever they want. Ah, I can't believe them. They're not really suffering for the gospel like I am. And bitterness could have crept into his heart. But practically speaking, giving thanks to God for other people helps us not become bitter towards other people. Do you thank God for fellow believers? How about that fellow believer that ticked you off last week, maybe a year ago? Have you thanked God for him? Have you found a reason to thank God? Maybe the reason is simply that they believe. I have been incredibly hurt by people in the church. Pastors oftentimes, and actually, I'll be honest with you, pastor wives are more attacked than pastors are. People can say horrible things about my wife. We have been hurt. And sometimes it's difficult to find things to be thankful for. You called my wife incredibly horrible names. How on earth am I going to be thankful for you? I can look back and say, I at least can give thanks to God that they're believers. I can at least, at the bare minimum, can say, Dear God, I thank you for so-and-so, 
and for the faith that they have in you. And as you do that, God works in your heart to take away the bitterness. So gives thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. And then he's going to outline the intercessory part, the prayers that he has for them, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So, the, so he's praying that, that, these, that the church in Ephesus would get to know God more and more. That's what he's saying here. The spirit of wisdom isn't just some general revelation. It's not some general, general uh, wisdom on how to operate in this world, but it's a wisdom of God that we would be able to discern what God's word says and apply it and live it out in our lives. That's what he's getting at with that saying. And then he's going to say, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And this is saying that your whole being, that your entire soul, not just your head, but your entire soul would understand God and apply his, his wisdom to your life that you may know what is the hope to which you are called. So at this point, we enter into three different aspects of his prayer. And each one is going to be outlined by what is. So what is the hope to which he has called you? So first, he wants them to understand the hope to which they are called. Now, this hope, once again, is not a wishy-washy hope. Oftentimes, when we use the term hope, we're using it in a wishy-washy, not really sure if this thing is going to happen kind of a way. So like if you're watching sports and your team is about to score and you say, man, I hope they win, what are you saying? I'm not sure they're going to win, but it would make me happy if they would win. That's not the hope that he's talking about. The hope that he's talking about is looking to the future certain of what's going to happen. So what is the hope to which we are called? Not only has he given us a hope, but he has called us to a hope. And what is the hope to which he is called? We can go back to the benediction and all of those blessings that he has given us. Every spiritual blessing, that is our hope. And it's not a wishy-washy hope. It's not like, one day I hope I make it to heaven. So I've heard people say that before. One day I hope that God will let me into heaven. We don't have a wishy-washy hope. We know that when we believe, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. So when you die, it's not a wishy-washy thing like, man, I hope I, hope I was good enough. I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. There's no way that can work. Your good deeds can never outweigh your bad deeds, and that hope is futile. It's fruitless. But the hope that we have in Christ, that the Holy Spirit indwelling us is the guarantee, that hope is a real thing. It's a sure thing. So, He's praying that our hearts would be enlightened, that our whole soul would truly understand what is that hope. Not only that it's a sure thing, but all that that hope entails. All of the glory that will come. And then, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, this is one of those lines that's kind of easy to read over. In fact, I have read over this line several times, and every time I read over this one, I always just automatically go up to verse 11 
In him we have obtained an inheritance. And I always just think, oh, he's just referring back to our inheritance. But let's read that again just a little bit more carefully. What is, or what are the riches of his? So whose inheritance is it? It's his inheritance. And then what is his inheritance? The saints. The saints are in his inheritance. Think about that for a second. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you are considered a saint. You've been set apart for God. You are his inheritance. So not only do we have an inheritance, but God has an inheritance as well. And his inheritance is a treasured possession. You. Think about what that means for a second. When we look around this world and the glory of this world and all of this awe-inspiring, wondrous world, when we look at the pictures from the James Webb Telescope and you see just what an amazing universe we live in, all of this God created and yet you are His treasure. How amazing is that? Not only are you a saint, but you're a treasure to God. And he's showing off his grace when he calls you that. Because we have lived in rebellion against God. Every single one of us has messed it up. Every single one of us has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. But if you remember, he paid the price for your rebellion. He paid the price for your sin. And when you put your faith and trust in him, you become a trophy of his grace. And he puts you on display. Who does the trophy glorify? Is it a trophy for a trophy's sake? You know, when you work hard in athletics, or maybe uh, it's some academic, and you win and you get that trophy, you put it on display, what does that proclaim? Does it proclaim how great the trophy is? Does it proclaim how great the contest was? It's proclaiming how great you are. You are a trophy of God's grace. And that says nothing about you. It says everything about God. And so he, he is collecting his trophies to put them on display to show off his glory and you are a part of his inheritance. You are a trophy of his grace. You are a treasure. But that's not all. So he prays that we would fully understand what our hope is and that we are called to that hope. He prays that we would understand that we are his inheritance, that we are trophies of God's grace. And then he prays, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So we would fully understand what is the power of God. And it's not just power. Power is a controlling influence. And it is that. But it's not just that. It's great power. 
I have some controlling influence. Actually, I'd say Jen, in our marriage, Jen probably has more of a controlling influence. Uh, she knows that I just grab, like in our closet, I always just grab the first shirt off the, you know, wherever it's at in our closet. And so she has a controlling influence in that she will, like, I didn't even know that she did this for years, but she will arrange how she wants me to wear my shirts. <laughs> I'd say that's controlling influence. <laughs> so I just, I still just take the first one. It doesn't matter to me, and it, apparently it does matter to her. So uh, she's got a better style. I'll go with it. But that's controlling influence. But that's not that much of a controlling influence, right? I have a controlling influence. You have a controlling influence. Even just our moods can have a controlling influence on other people, right? But it's not a great controlling influence. And God's controlling influence isn't just great. It's immeasurably great. Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. You can't even measure how great God's controlling influence is. There's no measuring tape. There's no yardstick. There's no Richter scale. There's no thermostat. There's nothing that can actually measure the greatness of God's controlling influence, His power. But that brings us to another thing. When we think of power, what do we usually think of? We think of something like a nuclear attack, right? Or a bomb exploding. Or or maybe a government that that can insert an influence and control people and insert their power. We think of guns or we think of muscle might. We think of very material controlling powers, don't we? But God's power isn't displayed that way. Oh, don't get me wrong. God could display His power with that kind of might. God, And one day God will dis- display His power when He melts the entire earth away. Think about that. But right now, God's not showing His immeasurable, great power that way. He's doing it in two ways. And the first is through changing hearts. This shouldn't help us. This should help us. It should encourage us to share the gospel. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I feel like it's up to me to change someone's mind about the gospel. And so I want to come into it with the right amount of arguments. I want to make sure I have all of my points lined out. I want to know that my apologetic is just spot on so that their heart can be changed. And if it's not, then what do I do? I, I get kind of shy. I don't want to share the gospel. And in all honesty, when I'm focused on me and my ability to change their heart, I go one of two ways. I either get prideful and I end up kind of offending them because I bring the hammer with some apologetics, right? And what do I do? I just make them mad. Or I become timid and I don't even share the gospel. When it's up to me, that's what happens. But when I remind myself that it's not me that would change their heart anyway, it is the Holy Spirit, and God has given me an assignment to share the gospel, and He will change hearts, that equips me to share the gospel. So that's one way that we can think of God's great influencing power right now, is that He changes hearts. And we see this throughout church history that Christian has been studying during Sunday school. We see that during the persecution of the first, uh, of the first uh, century church, 
it just continued to spread. And there's no other way that that would spread other than by the Holy Spirit changing hearts. But secondly, His power equips us to live out the assignment that He has given us. And if we aren't looking towards Him to equip us, we will never be able to fully live out that assignment. My kids and I have been reading a book called Jesus Freaks. It's about martyrs throughout the centuries. Martyrs throughout the history of the church. It's great bedtime reading material. I don't know why, but my kids always want to read it before bed. It's very sad. But what's amazing is there is martyr after martyr who's up against insurmountable odds. And almost every single one of them are killed for the Gospel. And almost every single one of them, the witnesses say that as they're being killed... were able to love their enemies still. As they're being killed for the Gospel, are still praying that God would forgive those who are killing them. Now we're seeing more and more people going against Christianity in America. And our our human response is to beat our chest Puff it out a little bit more and say, come at me, bro, because I'm ready. But I don't think that's the assignment God has given us. The assignment God has given us is to love those who hate you. And that's the way we need to be reacting when people show hate towards the church. Can you show love towards them? So he's got immeasurable greatness of power toward us who believe. It's not just that God's power is there to show off, but he, is, he has it and he is using it to equip us to live out the assignment that he has given us according to the working of his great might. And then 22 through 23 is just going to elaborate on this. And what's interesting here is that he's moving now from the prayer to the body of the, of the letter. He's going to start laying out the theology of the letter. But we're not quite sure, because he never says amen, so we're not quite sure where the prayer ends and where the body of the letter and the theology Uh, that he's explaining begins. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Think about that. Let that sink in of how great Jesus is. Oftentimes when we think about Jesus, we think about him in his human form, and we think about his earthly ministry here, or we think about future Jesus, the Jesus that's going to come back and he's going to reign as king on the earth, but we forget that there is a here and now Jesus, and Paul is describing a here and now Jesus, not a man that's getting ready to be crucified, and not the king that is going to melt the earth away, but he describes a king with authority. So, 
God raised him from the dead, seated him. Not that he's going to seat him. Not that he seated him in the past and he's no longer got the authority, but that he has seated him and that authority that he carries with being seated at the right hand in the heavenly places still carries on today. Being seated at the right hand of God uh, shows the authority that Christ has. And then he goes on to explain that authority. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There's no other authority on this earth that has more authority than Jesus. There's no other power on this earth that has greater power than Jesus. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Christ has authority over all things, including the church. What's interesting here is from this, he's going to develop a fuller theology of what it means to be a part of the church. And he's going to call it the body of Christ. And he's going to show us how much we need one another in the body of Christ. but also that we need to remember that Christ is the head. You can live without a pinky. You can live without a right hand. It might be a little bit uh, more difficult, but you can live. You can't live without a head. Without the head, there is no church. That's important for us to remember because there are some churches out there that claim to be a church, that claim to be the body, and yet have removed the head. They no longer believe in the deity of Christ. They no longer believe even in a historical Christ. They are no longer a church. They are no longer part of the body. You cannot be alive. You cannot be a body without a head. So he is head over all things, the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he takes this immeasurably great power and he equips us to live out the assignment he has given us. So Paul's prayer that he gives us here is that we would understand our hope. That we would understand how God thinks of us as His treasure, how He thinks of us as His trophies of grace, and that we would understand the vast magnitude of God's power. And that power is working on our behalf to live out our assignment. Too often, we're throwing our cell phones into the back of someone's truck. We're living nominal Christian lives because we're doing things out of obligation, not recognizing that God has immeasurably great power that He will work through you. That He has an assignment for you. And He's equipping you to live out your assignment. Not just Go to church out of obligation. Not just be moral out of obligation. 
but that you would live a life to its fullness. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you took a man in total rebellion like the Apostle Paul and that you changed his heart. And then you used him in such a way that he planted the church at Ephesus and that ten years later he would write a letter to them encouraging them. Reminding them that they are a body, that they need one another, and that you are the head. And without the head, the body is dead. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize your immeasurably great power to change hearts and to equip us for the assignment you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen.